Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I'm a leader here at GFC. Uh, because we're a little bit smaller in number this morning, I thought this would be a good opportunity to start with something interactive. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. I would like maybe three people to take a guess. So if you're brave and you don't mind, I'm looking at my brother, uh, go ahead and uh, offer up a guess. When do you think the very first selfie was taken? Okay, this is, I'm looking for a year. All right, when do you think the very first selfie was taken? Early 1900s, okay? Any other guesses? 2001, one more guess. 2000, okay, excellent. Actually, it's earlier than all of those. The first ever recorded selfie was taken in 1839 uh, by an American photographer named Robert Cornelius. Uh, he opened up his camera, and at this point, uh, the camera technology isn't where it was today, so he opened the lens from his camera, he walked in front, and he stood there. And he stood there. And he stood there while he waited for the film to be exposed. And that was the very first ever recorded self-photograph of a human being. Uh, since that time, the art of the selfie has exploded uh, into last year, 24 billion selfies were uploaded just to Google Apps alone. 24 billion. That's a lot of selfies. Um, and this is a little bit extreme, in my opinion, and bordering on narcissistic. But I do think that this phenomenon of the selfie stems from something that's God-given and is actually a part of the character of God himself, uh, which is the desire to be known. I think that this, this trend of selfies is, is an expression of trying to make yourself known to those who are close to you, or maybe, in the case of many selfies, those who are not so close to you. Uh, maybe this is why we take so many pictures of that perfect shot where the eyebrow is raised and you're not quite making eye contact with the camera uh, to show your mysterious side or something uh, along those lines. Um, we're trying to reveal our natures to those who are close to us. In the text that we're going to read today, uh, we're going to see that this text explicitly is God trying to reveal himself, not just to his people, but to the whole world. Uh, and throughout the book of Exodus, we've been looking at implied ways that God is revealing himself. We've been asking the question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And this is why, this is why we're looking at that today. I, I'm so blessed to have had this passage to talk on because... I think that here we have one of the clearest expressions of that throughout the whole book. This passage has really changed the way that I understand that name, Lord. Uh, and I hope that it will for you today as well. That from now on, when you hear that word, Lord, it changes how you understand God. Uh, today we're going to look through Exodus 5.22 all the way through 7.7. 7, uh, and we're going to see who is the Lord. He is the everlasting deliverer. And he will do whatever is necessary to make himself known to the whole world through his chosen mediator. 
We start off with a little bit of a, of a down note. If you remember last week, we uh, left with a little bit of a cliffhanger. So when we pick up in 522, we're going to see Moses really being vulnerable and admitting his doubt to the Lord. He's not sure what God's plan is. And God is going to reassure him, but in a way that may surprise you. So read with me, if you would, uh, Exodus 5:22 through 6, 8. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. That's powerful. Um, And it's even more powerful as we take this in context, Um, sort of the immediate context of what's happening here. Last week, we left with a a cliffhanger in chapter five. Uh, Moses was being approached by the people uh, after he had gone and spoken to Pharaoh and said to let his people go, which was what God had told him to do. uh, He went before Pharaoh and Pharaoh denied that request. Uh, And even greater than a denial, he actually increased the suffering and the burdens of the people. Their suffering got worse, not better. Uh, And the people came before Moses and, and complained to him and said, Moses, what is God doing? And Moses took that, uh, concern and that doubt and he brought it before the Lord. And he said, Lord, what are you doing? Look at verse 22. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Uh, This is an honest question. Moses is not uh, questioning God's power or his authority, but he's questioning whether or not God is going to do what he said he was going to do. He knows that God has the ability to rescue his people, but he doesn't yet know if God actually will rescue his people. In verse 23, it says, you have not delivered your people at all. His power is unquestioning, but his promise at the moment is untrustworthy. And then we get to chapter 6 in verse 1 where it says, But the Lord said to Moses. 
And let's all just praise the Lord for, but the Lord said. I think that's an amazing uh, piece of scripture, and we'll encounter that a few times here. But the Lord said to Moses. That is, that is an amazing thing that the Lord does. He takes the honest question that Moses brings before him, and he answers it. And he answers it in a way that is so gracious uh, that it's going to not only answer the question that Moses gives, but just reassure Moses and all of the people of who the Lord is. Verse 2 says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. That seems like a little bit of a non sequitur, right? If Moses asks this question, why have you done evil to the people? And God replies not with a justification or a big explanation of what's going on or here's my grand plan, but rather God responds with an identity, who he is. He says, I am the Lord. And if we think back a little bit to chapter 4, uh, is the first time where we see this Lord name referenced. Um, and I'll read that for you here. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Excuse me. So this Hebrew word Yahweh, which means the Lord, it means I am. It is this idea of eternal. It is ever-present. It's unchanging. This is what God is, is revealing to his people. When, they, when Moses asks him, what are you doing, God? Is your word trustworthy? He says, I am. He's the only being that can claim that he exists because he exists. He is true to himself always. And when, when Moses asks this question, what are you doing, God? And he responds with his name. It's a little bit like asking a man if he spends a lot of time around the pool and the guy responds and says, I'm Michael Phelps. Okay, that's just a little bit of an example of this idea of who the person is answers the question. This is in verse three. Uh, God says, I appeared to your forefathers as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but to you. I will make known a new aspect. He's going to be making known his name to Moses and the people. This entire generation was selected by God to have a new aspect of God revealed to them. What an honor that is. That something that has never been known about God before is going to be made known. Uh, to go back to the selfie analogy a little bit, uh, this isn't just your every, average everyday selfie. This isn't just a snapshot of God that shows something that we already know. This is like a selfie of a single guy with his arm around a young lady that gets posted by a friend on Facebook that causes everyone to respond with, oh, who is that? Oh, what, what is her name? What's your relationship with her? Or it's like the shoebox that your parents keep with all your baby pictures uh, that they bring out to show to people who you wish never knew those photos existed. Uh, they might reveal something about you that you don't feel comfortable with that person knowing. Um, this, is, this is a revelation of God's character. 
And he's going to do that in the passages that are coming up. This whole part of Exodus is what God is doing. And to the people at this moment, it seems like things may be getting worse. Verses 4 through 8 are, uh, are a reminder to us of all of the history that's come before. God is telling a story here. He's not just uh, satisfied with keeping one promise. He's going to do something, and it has implications that stretch far beyond the here and now. Verse 8 says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let's look a little bit here to that reference about um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is just a little bit of a recap, uh, because those three names would have a lot of history associated with them. Uh, let's look at a little bit of the previously on uh, idea here. This is context for everything that's come up to now. Uh, so here's just a little bit of a recap. God told Abraham that his offspring would outnumber the stars. And there's a small problem. His wife was barren. They miraculously have Isaac, but plot twist, God tells him that he has to sacrifice Isaac. Oh, wait. Then God provides a substitute lamb to be sacrificed in his place, allowing Isaac to grow up where he can marry his wife. But it turns out that she's, wait for it, also barren. Then there's a miraculous birth again, this time of twins. Jacob enters the scene. Jacob finds his wife, but turns out he has to work for 14 years before he can marry her. They have a whole bunch of kids. Those kids decide it's a good idea to sell each other into slavery. Ah, now there's a famine that hits the land, and now everyone's going to die. Oh, wait, no, one more time. Remember that slave? Well, it turns out he's the second most powerful man in the world, and we're all saved. But a few generations later, that guy's forgotten. We're all slaves again. Now we're, our sons are being murdered uh, and this is building this tension. This drama is going deeper and deeper. Every time we are waiting for this promised salvation, we're waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. Where God tells Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he's going to multiply them and he's going to give them a land. And we've seen the multiplication happen. Uh, but instead of being a great blessing, that turns out to be something that is a burden on the people and has led to this situation where we are in Egypt right now. Uh, God is building this tension and he's revealing to the people through his name that he's still in charge. He is still going to fulfill his promise. And we can apply this in our own lives very clearly. Uh, even when things appear to get worse, we can know that God is Yahweh. This story that he's telling us here through the people of Israel is telling us that he is absolutely trustworthy. So when you pray for reconciliation with a family member or a colleague, and instead of reconciliation, you seem to only get more conflict, you can know that God is Yahweh. He is consistent. He will keep his words. When you ask for freedom from a sin and then are immediately tempted by that very same sin, you can know that God is Yahweh. He is faithful to keep his promises. When you trust God for a healing uh, in your body or in a relationship, 
and instead it seems to get worse, you can know that God is Yahweh. We can read this story and we can be comforted by this revelation of who God is. In spite of all appearances sometimes, God is faithful and he will keep his promises. And he's going to do it in a way that is going to shock and amaze us. He's going to do it in a way that is going to go over and above what we could hope or expect. So let's go a little deeper into this section and let's see what happens next. We've built up this tension of what's going to happen. Uh, Moses has asked that question and God replies with, I am Yahweh and now you will see what I will do. So read with me. We're going to read the next section, uh, which is chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So here again, we see Moses obeying the word of the Lord. God said, tell the people this. Moses did. But the Hebrews are so beaten down that they don't even believe it. They don't trust who God is. And it seems at this point that Pharaoh's plans are working. Remember, uh, we had learned previously that Pharaoh had intended to crush the people and to burden them with such harsh work that they would not leave his land. And it seems at this point in time that this is working. His plan is working. Then in verse 13, it says, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Here we are again. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. We see God interjecting again. He's not giving up. He's not frustrated. He is consistent with who he is. And so by his very nature, he is going to be working with Moses and with the people. And something different about this uh, passage than the previous one was that he spoke to both Moses and Aaron. And he gave them a charge. Uh, we don't know precisely what that charge was here, except that it involved them going to Pharaoh and telling him the same thing that he just said. So what is the difference? We see here when, when Moses asks of the Lord then, why should Pharaoh listen to me? This is a new question that he's asking. He's no longer asking, God, why are you doing evil? Will you keep your promise? He's now asking, okay, God, you are who you say you are. I believe that. But why should this human person who is opposed to you listen to me? How can I possibly connect a God who is I am eternal with a human who is opposed in every way to the workings of God? And God is going to answer him here, much like he did in the first one, with an identity. But instead of the identity of who God is, he's going to give him the identity of the mediator that God is going to provide. Uh, that brings us to the next section, which is Exodus 6, 14 through 7, 2. Now, this is a genealogy. I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, because it's very long and I'll probably embarrass myself when I mispronounce the names. Uh, but I will give you 
uh, a summary here of what's going on in this genealogy. And I don't want you to miss it because this genealogy is really, really important. It's not what we should uh, glaze over or just sort of say, oh, a genealogy, we'll skip to the next interesting part. Uh, this is very important, and it's actually at the center of a chiasm which shows how important this genealogy is. Um, so let me summarize for you this genealogy, and I'd like to show that this is actually the answer to the question of why should Pharaoh listen to me? The genealogy starts off in verses 14 through 16, sort of as expected, uh, with the families of the sons of Israel. It starts at the eldest, Reuben, and it goes Simeon and Levi. But then in verse 17, instead of continuing with the children of Israel, we start to move deeper into the lineage of Levi. We drop the rest of the twelve, and we start digging deeper into Levi. Levi uh, is the is the tribe of the priesthood. Levi, the Levites were the ones who were responsible for making sacrifices and atoning offerings uh, for the people of Israel. We see that Levi had three sons, one of whom is Kohath, and then in verse 18, he has Amram. Then verse 20, Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. So, okay, now we're sort of making sense. I understand why we're following Levi, because that's where Moses and Aaron are coming from. That makes a little bit of sense. We then expect to see the children of Moses and Aaron, but that's not what we get. We get only the children of Aaron. Okay, this is through the line of Eleazar and through to Phineas, who is the high priest. We've totally dropped off Moses at this point. And that's surprising because he's kind of a big point in Exodus, right? He's a big character. We would expect to see Moses in the genealogy. But we actually don't follow his lineage. And we know that he had children because it tells us other places in Exodus that he did. So why is this lineage going only to the Levites and then through Aaron down to Eleazar and to Phinehas? Well, it's because these are the priests these are the people who have been appointed by God as mediators between sinful man and God. A holy God cannot be approached except through a mediator. And that mediator is being provided here uh, through this lineage. God has already, for the last generations, been preparing his people for this confrontation with Pharaoh. Moses asks, how will Pharaoh listen? And God reveals the critical need and the identity for a mediator. It's the only way that this is going to work. Look at chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, there we have that again, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God has prepared this team, he's prepared this mediator and the mediator for the mediator uh, to come and speak to Pharaoh. And this is just showing such a critical need for how important this role is. I've experienced this important need for a mediator in my own life. Um, I've been blessed to, in my career, work in a number of other countries, uh, many of which don't speak English. And 
One particular example I remember was when I was in Japan, I was going to do business and I arrived at the office building, went up to a very intimidating boardroom, sat around a table with a dozen very intimidating Japanese businessmen, and they spoke no English, I spoke no Japanese, and we just sat there trying not to make eye contact with each other because of the tension and the awkwardness and there was nothing I could even do. I couldn't make a funny joke. I couldn't, like, talk about the weather. I was completely helpless to do anything to interact with these men, let alone do business with them. I was in desperate, desperate need of a mediator who arrived in the form of a translator. He was only about five minutes late, but it felt like an hour. Um, and he arrived in the whole room, sort of let a, a collective sigh Ah, okay, now we can do what we're here to do. Now things can get rolling because the mediator has arrived on the scene. And what a beautiful picture this is here in Exodus uh, and of that, of that need for a mediator. And God has provided not just the mediator for Moses, but he's provided the perfect mediator for us in the form of Jesus Christ. He's given us a way to approach a holy God and it cannot happen except through a sacrifice of the perfect atoning blood of this mediator who can come between us and can rescue us from our sin. And it's that, that is the point of all of this. That's what we're building up to. We're building up to God fulfilling his promises of deliverance and his pl- promises of glory. He's going to be taking us to a place where we see God in a new light. He is revealing himself to us. He revealed who he was as Lord, Yahweh, I am. He reveals the need for a mediator between a sinful people and a holy God. And now he's going to reveal exactly what his plan is for how he's going to do this. So let's read Exodus 7, 3 through 7, 7. But... I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let's look again at verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, though I multiply my signs and wonders. So God is giving Moses here a fair warning of what the next many chapters are going to be about. That every time Moses goes before Pharaoh, he's going to deny his request. And it could be tempting for Moses to ask that question again of God of why. Why are you doing that? You promised salvation and you, you God, are actively preventing us from being saved. What is happening here? Well, God is making it clear that he's fully in control. And in verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
This is going to happen through redemption, which we see in verse 4. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land. And it's going to happen through judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, this is verse 5, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. So we get, we get this, this redemption of Israel and this judgment of Egypt. But why? Why is God doing that? And we see that the reason is so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And that is miraculous. God is such a big God that he doesn't, he's not satisfied just with keeping the promise to the people that he's going to save them out of slavery. He's not satisfied with fulfilling promises for three generations of his people to multiply them miraculously, to give them a land miraculously. He's not satisfied with just being known as the Lord uh, to his own people. He even wants to be known as the Lord to his enemies, to the people who hate him. And God is going to, to redeem even some of them so that they join with the Israelites when they leave. This is so amazing. God is such a big God. He's, he's not satisfied with any of those single, um, with those single completions uh, of his promise. He's going to go even over and above. This is like any of those great uh, Ocean's Eleven or sort of um, movies like that where people uh, are such, such masters of their craft that you might be afraid for a couple of minutes that, oh no, they failed and they're going to, to be captured or whatever else. Uh, but they're actually in so much control that they're accomplishing multiple objectives simultaneously. And that we get that big excitement at the end when it's revealed to us what is it they were actually trying to do. Not only were they trying to get rich, they were also trying to make the, the villain look like a fool and the all-important get the girl and all of those many things that, that are happening behind the scenes. God is doing this for his people. He's creating such a story uh, that is going to astound and make him known not only to his people, but even to the Egyptians. And we see in this that it's not even finished. You know, we, the story continues, and it continues through the cross, and it continues with us today, that God moves in ways that are beyond our comprehension. We see that we can apply this here, the idea that the, the Great Commission is not a New Testament concept. God did not suddenly become, uh, he didn't suddenly want to, to save the, the world and the Gentiles. This is something that he's been planning for all of history. This is something that he's been creating and building. Uh, this desire to be known is an Old Testament concept. And because God is I am, because he's Yahweh, he's consistent with that. This means that he's committed to making himself known, and we can be confident that he will use everything in his power to make himself known to both his people and the lost. He will use the Holy Spirit. He will use his word, the Bible. He will even use us. He will use every single event in our life to further make himself known to us and to others. We can also trust that God remembers his covenant. And he's going to free us from slavery of sin. He's going to, he's going to free his people from this slavery. And he, he will do it. He will do it in a way that then is used 
to encourage others. He will do it in a way that changes our understanding of who he is. So, let's conclude by answering that question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Well, he's the everlasting deliverer. He's going to do whatever is necessary to make himself known. Not just to his own people, but to the whole world. And he's going to do that through his chosen mediator, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Holy God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are the Lord, God, that you are a unchanging, fully reliable God, that you have a mission, that you include us in your mission to save your world. God, I pray that you would remind us of that this week, that we could be looking for ways to uh, reach out, that we could um, know you in new ways uh, that we've never experienced you before, God, that your Holy Spirit and your word and the circumstances of our life would mold us uh, into the image of your Son. Thank you, God, for sending him to die on the cross, uh, that we could be uh, in fellowship with you. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.